In today's polarized world, how do we identify and practice our core values? How can we bring our spiritual and ethical commitments into our lives? What might activism grounded in spirituality look like? I'm Dr. Simranjit Singh and the host of Spirited, a podcast about thinkers, leaders, and activists, and how they use their beliefs to navigate today's complicated world. I'm here today with Brad Hirschfield, a rabbi, author, and president of the National Jewish Center for Learning and Leadership. Brad was ranked three years in a row in Newsweek as one of America's 50 most influential rabbis. And in 2008, he published a book called You Don't Have to Be Wrong for Me to Be Right, Finding Faith Without Fanaticism. I was fascinated by this book and wanted to learn more about how one might remain committed to their own beliefs while also honoring the beliefs of others. So Brad, let me ask you this. Who are you at your core and what is it that drives you? So those are two separate questions. I love them both. They're both really smart. And I'm going to do something classically rabbinic, which is answer a question with a question. When you ask people what's at their core, who they are at their core, do they ever say I'm a mean, venal, hateful, selfish soul? Mm. My guess is not so much. So I think all questions about core are aspirational by nature. And I don't know that I know. I don't know that I believe anyone knows who's at their core. I think they know who they aspire to be, and I will answer that. But anytime the answer always breaks in only one direction, something's missing in that answer. So if you told me, you know, I seem to ask that question all the time, about half the people tell me they're horrible deep down at their core, and half tell me they're enlightened, noble souls. I go, now we're on to something. But no one does that. We know that, right? Has anyone ever given you that kind of answer? Never. Never, Never. right. <laughs> so part of it is that it's all aspirational, and part of it, maybe a touch more radically, I don't think at the individual level there is a stable core. I really believe in the best of worlds, we're all always evolving. And so if someone says, well, deep, deep, deep down, you know what you get? The next place to go even deeper. If you ask me who I think all human beings are, what we share, whether it's their core or their externality, because even that's a whole separate conversation, I don't know that I want to distinguish between the core and the surface. A lot of people have spent a lot of years thinking about people's core while they did terrible things to their surfaces. So for me, that body-spirit question of core and externality, they're absolutely integrated. I suppose what drives me is the desire to see people use whatever traditions they love best, spiritual traditions, political traditions, economic traditions, to try and make that claim not just a biblical story, not just a claim, but a reality for more and more people until it's finally realized for everyone. Would you tell us a little bit about your own spiritual formation? Sure. That's an easier question. Um, And since I believe that all spiritual formation is fundamentally about biography, my first two great spiritual teachers were my mom and dad. Even though if you would ask them when we were growing up, I don't even know that would have been a meaningful question to them. But I'll tell you what I mean. I grew up in a home that was passionately Jewish, but largely secular in its orientation. Philanthropic causes sponsored by Jews were much more important than going to synagogue. Uh, Synagogue was something we stayed away from religiously. (laughs) He showed up on my holidays and checked that box and move on. Though Jewish education was central to my parents, they went to a Jewish day school. So I grew up from the age of five in a setting where I spoke Hebrew half the day and English half the day. But religious observance was not a big deal. So two lessons I learned from my parents. We did not observe Jewish food laws, kashrut. But whenever we ate and wherever we ate, however unkosher the food was, my father would make a little hand kippah, a little hand skull cap, and place it to his head. And he would recite a blessing and invite us to say it with him. Now, we knew the food was forbidden according to Jewish religious law. 
What my father understood is people can have real disagreements about what's in and what's out. But if you break bread with people you love, that's a sacred moment. Whatever tradition you hold dear, use it to mark what's sacred, even if someone else thinks it's forbidden. That's my father's key teaching. Having grown up in that, my mother was somewhat surprised when I came to her and said that I wanted to start observing all these rules. I came to her and said, Mom, can I get a couple of plates and a couple of forks and a couple of pots and pans? And she said, for what? Because no one for generations had observed these rules in my mother's family. Really, it's not an exaggeration. The last person who we know, my mother's family, who observed kosher laws was my great-great-grandfather. Long way out. So she said, but for what? And I explained that I wanted to start keeping these rules. And that meant I needed my own dishes and my own silverware. And, and if she wanted me to eat meat, I was happy to be a vegetarian. She had to find a kosher butcher shop. And she looks at me and she goes, so you want me to get you two forks, two knives, two spoons, two pots and two pans, right, milk and meat, two sets of plates. And if I want you to eat chicken, I've got to go find a kosher butcher. I said, yeah. She goes, no, I won't do that. <laughs> and we talked about everything in my family. So I was like, what are you? That's crazy. You sent me to a school where they teach these things. Now I want to do them. And you're like, no. She said, I absolutely will not buy you two forks and two knives and fight a kosher. It's nuts. And I was like really hurt. She said, but wait a second. Slow down. Here's what I will do. If you're willing to wait until the summer when you go to camp, even though I have no idea what this means, I will call the rabbi of our synagogue and I will make this whole house, house kosher. You will? Yeah, I will. Why? I asked her. And without batting an eyelash, she looked at me and said, because in your own home, you don't eat off of different dishes. And then she said, but I have one more rule for you, my now kosher eating son. I said, what's that? Whatever these rules are, you're still going to go out to dinner with your family at whatever restaurant we choose. And in one fell swoop, my mom understood she would not allow her fear of my newfound faith, and there was plenty of anxiety and fear about this, to get in the way of our relationship and her being supportive. And the second thing she understood was I would never be allowed to use that newfound faith as a club to beat up on other people for not doing Jewish or being spiritual the way I was. Tell me then... You know, you have this relationship with, with your mother and your family where you commit to practicing Jewish traditions in a way that they didn't. And so what does, what does that look like in your head? How do you balance having a particular understanding of how you practice Judaism while also respecting their versions? So I've held that together in different ways over the course of my life. And the longer story we won't do is I also spent years in a very hardcore fundamentalist place about my relationship to Judaism. Though interestingly, it didn't express itself in relationship to people who did Jewish differently. It had to do with politics in Israel and among Palestinians. And I stepped away from that because it didn't fit with the other stuff I believed about the dignity of every person. The most profound way to balance it for me is that I really believe, because I'm very traditional in that way, I really believe I am doing what the God in whom I believe calls me to do. I also really appreciate that I'm one finite being listening to an infinite caller, which means if the caller is infinite and the texts are infinite, then there are infinite ways of doing them. See, to me, the more deeply you believe in that traditional, commanding, compelling text or God, or gods, however you put it together, the more pluralist you have to be. Because how could one finite container or one finite way of doing a tradition or even one tradition hold all the gifts of an infinite source. It's not possible. Beautiful. Okay, so let's, let's explore that a little bit more. What does it look like to be someone who is committed to a particular 
faith, tradition, practice, and also at the same time not feel like you must impose that on other people because you know, but the, the sense would be this is the way that I know to live. I believe it. I think it's the best. I would want other people to have this. Of course there are times I want to impose on others. And, if, and by the way, the more you love someone, typically, the more you feel that way. Just like we want to show people pictures of the people we love, we want the people we love most to be in there with us doing it our way. That's a very natural impulse. I just don't think you should build community or make public policy that way. I completely understand. By the way, it's genetically built in. Replication is a really sacred impulse. It's literally built into our biological fabric. All you have is pure replication. You have no growth and no evolution. So it's always this dance. Of course I want us to agree and support each other and be alike. And I also understand if that's all there is, nothing can change. So unless you're prepared to say, I am good with how the world is, exactly the way it is, nothing should ever change. Unless you're willing to say that, and no one is, from the right, from the left, from the up, from the down, from the Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Sikh, it doesn't matter. Unless you're willing to say the status quo is perfection, then by definition, you have to begin to make room for the partial truth that can be found even in the things you don't want to do. And so the first question after you get over the damn, but I want you to do it just like me, is what can I learn from you? And where those come together was something I learned in the years following 9-11 when I began to work a lot with rather radical Muslim communities around the world. And a lot of people were very angry at me for even engaging these folks. And I said, well, here's the thing. You would like those people to change, right? Yes, they must change. Okay. Here's what I've learned. The only way you can be someone else's teacher is to first be their student. So I want to honor both the impulse for replication and I want everyone to do it just my way and all be in it with me together. And the fact that the only way to grow is not to only be a teacher, but to always be a student, even of the things you really don't like. One of my teachers taught me a long time ago. He lived his life in light of two rules. God never created anyone so right and so smart is to be 100% right 100% of the time, or anyone so stupid is to be wrong 100% of the time. The rest were just negotiating. So it sounds like that's also a formula to help protect yourself from getting sucked into hate. You know, if you're recognizing that no one is always wrong, and that there's some partial truth to everyone, and that you can learn from someone at all times. That sounds protective, right? Right, so I'm assuming people are doing what they believe is right. That's actually more intoxicating and dangerous than doing the wrong thing. Most people doing the wrong thing somewhere deep down know it's wrong, and they eventually burn out. But when you feel you're doing the right thing, what should stop you? The answer is nothing. And when you believe you're doing 100% the right thing, that's the fanaticism that actually will destroy the world. I want to define fanaticism through the words of a religion scholar, Oscar Ali Engineer. He says that fanaticism can be defined as overenthusiasm and zealousness. This overenthusiasm may cross all bounds of reason and may tend to become wild and dangerous. Fanatics always act zealously. Such zealousness may result in severe problems for humanity at large. 
it must be pointed out that fanaticism is not related to religion. It is related to human psychological type. In other words, fanaticism is not religious, but a psychological category. Unfortunately, these two distinct categories are often mixed up both by believers and non-believers. Many people tend to think that religion means fanaticism and closed-mindedness. This is far from true. In fact, religion per se is neither fanatical nor liberal. It is what its followers make it out to be. Deep belief won't destroy the world. Passionate commitment won't destroy the world. Fanaticism will destroy the world. And I have a very simple definition of fanaticism. It has nothing to do with people who look differently or pray differently or don't pray differently or have very strong beliefs that I may love or ones that I hate. The fanatic is the one who believes they're 100% right 100% of the time. And the God or the cause they most believe in is always on their side. There is no thing, no matter how well motivated, that ends well when you do that. And almost anything, short of real threat of immediate physical violence, can't be learned from and can't be turned towards some way of bridging these divides. Because in the end, most people talk about wanting to bridge divides, and what they really mean is they want to drag you over to their side. It's sales. In fact, one of the reasons I didn't want to be a rabbi for a long time was I didn't want to do sales. I didn't want the metric of my life to be, did I make more people look like me or Jew like me? For me, it was about, wow, I'm in love with and feel loved by a 3,500-year-old tradition, which I'd like to offer other people, Jewish or not, as a tool to becoming more who they most want to be in this world. Because my experience is that most people, not all, I'm not that naive, but most people, if you ask them, are you doing what you think you feel most called to and that others can recognize as valuable are going to go too far wrong? It's got to be both. What we feel most called to and that others look at and go, I may not agree with you, but I can appreciate that. Hi, everyone. A few weeks ago, I spoke with you all about a powerful project that I've been involved with called Bentley. Venly is a spiritual support app that is now available for iPhones, and it features some of the top spiritual and community leaders across faith traditions, cultural backgrounds, and gender identities. What I love about Venly is that you can listen to this incredible wisdom in short perspectives. Most are five or six minutes long, and it's so accessible. I've been listening to them on the subway while I commute. You can follow incredible spiritual leaders like Brad Hirschfield or Amy Butler, or you can search by the topic areas that interest you. I've been moved by the raw candor of the perspectives on inequality, faith, parenting, stress, and familial relationships. The name Venley comes from the Venn diagram, and I'm inspired by these different perspectives and incredible thinkers coming together in one place. Brad Hirschfeld and I are both contributors on the platform, and we're going to play one of his perspectives at the end of this episode. It's called, How Can I Stay Rooted While Still Accepting People of Other Faiths? Spirited listeners are the first to know about Venley, and you can enjoy a one-week free trial by downloading it now in the Apple App Store. Just search for Venley, that's V-E-N-N-L-Y. If you don't have an iPhone, you can visit joinvenley.com and sign up for the mailing list to be alerted when the Android version is ready. Give the app a try, and send me a tweet at sickprof to let me know what you think. Again, the app is called Venly, V-E-N-N-L-Y, and you can find it now in the Apple App Store. You mentioned a few moments ago that you found yourself in a fairly fundamentalist mindset. 
Um, so it sounds like you're you're speaking from personal experience when you're talking about fanaticism. So tell me a little bit about what that was like and and how you found your way out. Um, found my way in because it was an approach that believed that spiritual life wasn't just some heady ethereal thing. It was lived in real time. And that meant that by the age of 18, I'm not only living in Israel, which is by no means a fanatical move, but lived in the city of Hebron, one of 60 Jews, amongst then about 75,000 Palestinians. And we don't need to do the politics of it to imagine that for any time you do that, you, may, you really end up believing, wow, if there's 70, 60 of us and 75,000 of them, and you know it's tense, whether you're aware of it or not, that can only work if you have fundamental disregard for the people you're with. Otherwise, you're crazy, right? Why would you do it? And that sense that God is on our side. When it's like that old bumper sticker in the South. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. That was me. It's 17, 18, 19, 20. I left when I saw the community that I loved. And by the way, I partly entered there because it honored a wider range of ways of being Jewish, even though it was all orthodox than anything I'd ever seen, because it said every member of the Jewish people has a cosmically significant role. Problem is, when you got beyond the Jewish people in that community, it wasn't so good. So it was remarkably inclusive and expansive Jewishly, but kind of tone deaf to those first 20 generations that we learn about in the Bible who aren't Jewish at all. So that's why big tent theory always scares me. The issue isn't who you include. It's how do you talk about the people you exclude? Everyone excludes everybody. The question is not who you include, because that's easy. We can include each other. It's no problem. How do you talk about and look upon and treat the people you've excluded? When I realized that was playing out, I said, I'm out of here. And uh, because I said there has to be a better way. There has to be a better way to dive deeply into what I feel most called to without creating those barriers which demand that I not look upon that which I don't directly participate in. And so I left, and it was a process. But part of that process, I said, was I didn't want to be a rabbi. I, did, I was personally observant, but I felt everyone doing religion was in sales, and I wanted to be in service. Everyone in religion was handing out Venus paint-by-number kits, if people remember what those are. And I simply wanted to put paint on people's palettes and invite them to be artists. And by the way, when you do that, you get a lot of crappy art. But I would rather a culture of aspiring artists than a bunch of spiritual automatons painting Venus paint-by-number kits. That was the shift for me. I left people I loved. I left behind things I liked. There were things in that space and in that time and in that worldview that I had to give up. Things that were beautiful. And again, that's when I re that's the realization. You don't leave things because they're all bad, now you're all good. I tell people all the time, living in Hebron was remarkable in many ways, but the price was too damn high. We should always be asking, not is this the right thing or the wrong thing, but what's the price and who else is paying? In, in your own sort of shift, this, this story that you're sharing, it speaks to what you opened with about what's at your core, right? You would, what you would have said when you were 18 is very different, it sounds like, than right. what you are now. Right, and I think being open to that change is crucial. Live with full integrity in the moment, but know that the next moment could be totally different. If you ask me one of my great concerns about all spiritual traditions right now, the way they're used by most people in the world, there's very little surprise. And the funny thing is every tradition I know begins 
with a moment of surprise, radical surprise by the founder who goes, oh my God, I never saw it that way before. I never thought of it that way before. And if that does not remain a part of every tradition, it can never remain a great tradition. So it's not about not having deep commitments. And yes, I wake up every day and there's certain rituals and they repeat. No, I don't want to think about them. People ask me, I'll talk about mindful prayer. I say, you know, try mindless prayer first. <laughs> We're living at a time of intense polarization and everyone thinks they're right and everyone thinks something different. And there there really is no middle ground, it seems like. And, and increasingly, uh, the tensions are more and more personal. And so what what would you say to someone today who's living in America or any other part of the world and is trying to figure out what do I do with difference? So three things. First, when it hits you in the face, we're going to stipulate that everyone needs to be able to step back because you really feel literally hit in the face. You're going to punch back and I get that. But try and find a moment to ask, what can I learn from that person or that doctrine or that political theory? I'm not going to embrace it. I get that. But what can I learn from it? What can I appreciate in the person who practices it or believes it? And when I ask people to appreciate, I don't mean appreciate what they do that's like you. You're not going to do it. But there's something that you can learn from and there's something that you can appreciate. And the third thing is to ask, how can I fit them in to my worldview without them becoming more like me. Everyone wants to solve polarization from the outside in. That's not how it works. It starts from the inside out. And my deepest hope is that people would seize on their traditions and come into community, not just to make them feel safe, but to make them feel brave enough to start with themselves and work out. Because that's where real change happens. And ultimately, it's the only change we can really control. The one thing we always have a choice about is how we want to react to the things we cannot change. So it sounds it sounds like what you're saying is that we should leave aside our impulse to persuade other people of our of our sides. I'm not that evolved. <laughs> That's the thing I want you to be like. But before you have that conversation, do the first three things. And then have at it. It's not about we're not going to look, it took decades, centuries, eons to get to where we are. We're not going to solve it in the next five minutes or even the next five years, not even the next 50. But imagine a fierce debate that begins with the premise, I, Brad, have something to learn from you, Simran. Even at the end of the debate, we haven't changed our positions at all. But that debate proceeds from the premise that you can be my teacher. Now debate like crazy. But that's a very different kind of debate. If I start with the premise that you're my brother, well, we know family fights are always the hardest. But if you're really my brother, it means no matter how hard they are, we're going to come back together in some way afterwards. So no, I don't want to flatten difference. I don't want to get rid of distinction. I want people to really be able to have those fights, hopefully ideological, not physical, but re realize the person you're fighting with is actually a part of who you are. And they need to realize that you're a part of them. And I think that much more than a particular polarization is the challenge we're having. Can you really imagine how much you're like the person you like least? Can they really imagine how wise you might be even though they disagree with you completely? 
could we realize, and that's why I wrote, gave the last book the title, is that you don't have to be wrong for me to be right. That the category of rightness that humanity needs right now is bigger than any one of us can fulfill. And that the solutions we need cannot be fully embodied simply by those who happen to agree with one another. Can you, can you think of an example or a story where you've put this into practice? And um, This was a television show I did for a then extant Muslim television network called Bridges TV. And it was called uh, American Pilgrimage and it found me traveling around North America speaking to Muslim imams and sheikhs. And I met with someone who was very, very popular, very well known in the North American Muslim community, both an academic and an imam. And had defended quite loudly people who I have no problem saying are terrorists. And as the conversation unfolded, I said, can we talk about Islamic terror? He said, no, there's no such thing. That's ridiculous. What are you? I didn't. You, you duped me. I didn't know you were an Islamophobe. I said, I'm not. He said, well, there's no Islamic terror. He goes, do you think there's no Jewish terror, is there? I said, you're damn right there is. He said, what? I said, when a man walks into the Ibrahimi Mosque in Hebron, Hebron, as Baruch Goldstein did, and I knew him, and murdered 29 Muslims at prayer, and did so because of the scriptures he had read and the traditions he was immersed in, that's Jewish terror. It may not make me proud. It may make me nauseous at my core. It may be something I have to stand up and fight actively against. But yes, there is Jewish terror, and yes, there is Muslim terror, and yes, there is Christian terror, and on and on and on. He said, you, you can't believe that. That's collective guilt. I said, no, sir. It's collective responsibility. Guilt can only fall on the actor. Responsibility falls on all of us who want things to be better. What's, what's your hope for the future? What do you envision for us? I'm hesitating because I'm realizing that my hopes and what I envision are not necessarily aligned. I think we're going to have to work through a lot of stuff that I envision before we get to my hopes. <laughs> my hopes have to do with going back to that core belief of living in a world where it's actually credible, not just as a faith statement, but as a world picture in which every human being really is treated as if and lives as if they are of infinite value, fully equal to one another, and genuinely respecting their uniqueness to one another. What I envision is a lot of hard work that we're all going to have to do that begins looking inward a lot more than we're comfortable doing. And I believe that the real task of spiritual leaders today is not to recruit people to see things as they see them, but to hold and nurture and teach people to see them that they are always more complicated than we first imagine. And if people of genuine commitment can also embrace real nuance and complexity. And this is a faith statement. With all my heart, I believe we will get to that world that I hope to see. In a world that feels increasingly combative and judgmental, it's so refreshing to have models that show us a different way. It's especially power to have that wisdom come from someone who's been on the other side. Thank you, Rabbi Hirschfeld, for sharing these insights with us. We wish you all the best going forward. 
Thank you to our producers, Cynthia Pimentel, Edie Allard, and the rest of the team at Wonder Media Network, and the Venley team for their support. Shout out to my brother, Rajuju, for the theme music. We'll be back on January 8th, which is actually his birthday. We're taking two weeks off for the holidays, so I hope you enjoy them. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Such regal, and talk to you later. Before you go, take a moment to listen to Brad's perspective from Venley. Hi, I'm Rabbi Brad Hirschfield, and this perspective is on how I can stay rooted while still accepting people of other faiths. How do you manage being deeply rooted in a particular tradition and still being open to others, including the ones you really don't want a whole lot to do with? It feels, especially with religion, that's getting harder and harder to do in a world which is increasingly divided between zealots who are 100% convinced that they are 100% right. And man, are they committed. But the price of their commitment is so often a deep disrespect and even a danger to those who don't share their views. And other people who know that is a crazy way to be, but find themselves having real difficulty making commitments to anything or anyone because it feels like it'll narrow them. It'll make them precisely the kind of zealot that they don't want to be. I suppose in philosophy, this is called the challenge of pluralism. The idea that there is more out there than the space that we inhabit or choose to inhabit. It's the space between an absolutism that claims to know everything always for everyone and a relativism that says, who am I to decide? The challenge with absolutism is it so easily provides cover for the most horrible behavior to others who don't fall within the predefined categories of what's appropriate and not. On the other hand, that kind of relativism often leads to a paralysis, which, although typically less violent, is probably no morally better. Because while the fanatic and the absolutist may mobilize their views to do unspeakable things, all too often the relativist is paralyzed into a place where they won't do those things. They will stand by and watch them happen. Because after all, who's to say? The pluralist lives in that middle space, a space in which we dare to say, I am all in. I stake my life on a certain value proposition, but I readily admit that I can't know with perfect certainty that it is correct. I am willing to be 100% committed to that which I am only 60 or 70, or maybe even 51% certain of. Now, some of you will say, but Brad, that's crazy. How can I be all in on something if I'm not 100% convinced? So let me give you an example. Imagine, and I get it, it's prosaic, it's stupid, but bear with me. You're standing by a bus stop in a city you've never visited, and you know that you want to get to a certain destination, the home of a loved one, a particular museum or library, someplace you've always wanted to see and you really hope to. And you're standing on the street by this bus stop and you know where you want to get, but you're not 100% certain which bus line will get you there. 
So you're standing there and watching. And eventually a bus comes and you are pretty certain that this is the right one. And so you get on that bus. Only 70 or 60 or maybe only 51% certain that it's the right one. But you do get on. Now here's the amazing thing. You are all on the bus. You are 100% on the bus. And really interestingly, everyone who saw you get on the bus probably thinks you know exactly what you're doing. But you don't. You got on the bus because you're mostly certain. If you're all on, what difference does it make? Here's the difference it makes. The way you ride the bus when you're 70 or 60 or 51% certain, you are 100% on the bus. But boy, do you look at the people sitting with you differently. You look out the windows at the passing scenery. You're alive to new possibilities and experiences that continue to shape your conclusion. That's what it means to live deeply committed to a particular tradition or way of life. To be 100% all in at any given moment, but having enough questions in reserve to always leave open the possibility of reevaluating, of relearning, of new wisdom and insight that can come from outside. And for someone who says, but Brad, doesn't deep belief, especially in your tradition, in Jewish tradition, which believes that the tradition is a gift from God, and I do believe in revelation, so how can I not be 100% certain? It's easy. I actually believe the more deeply one believes in revelation, the more radically pluralist one must be. I believe the tradition, the Torah, the teaching that I have received is the infinite gift of an infinite God. If it is the infinite gift of an infinite God, and I accept my own finitude, then by definition, at any given moment, I can never possess all of it. I can never possess a full understanding of it. But I can be fully possessed by the understanding I have. Living that life in which we remain all in to what we are doing and deeply aware of the need to keep reevaluating and asking questions, at least some of the time, far from being something that undermines deep faith, my experience is it is the greatest witness to the presence of a revealing God that we can possibly have. <laughs>